0: Well, please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We've been looking into the letters to the seven churches, short letters, concerning what the Lord Jesus Christ commends and what He corrects among the churches so that we, as His church, might be able to be pleasing to the Lord in all respects. That we would be increasing in faith, hope, and love as he specifically points out the ways that the churches were excelling and the way that the churches were failing in regards to the great cardinal virtues of faith, hope, and love. The Word of God speaks. Jesus Christ is present among us, and we must hear His voice so that we can be obedient to all that He calls us to, for He is truly our Lord and our Savior. As we looked into Revelation chapter 3 last week, we began to get into the subject of hope in the churches, and we have three messages planned for this particular virtue among the churches, and last week we looked into verses 1 through 13, comparing and contrasting the church at Sardis, which was a church that did not have grounds for hope at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because of their lack of faithfulness, and then the church at Philadelphia, who, because they were faithful, had great hope, and they were able to look forward with eager expectation to the coming of Jesus Christ. And that's really what the book of Revelation is all about, the coming of Jesus Christ. And so we also must examine ourselves, individually and collectively as a church, are we ready for the coming of Jesus Christ As we just read in Matthew chapter 24, the Lord Jesus is coming at a time when we will not expect, that we do not know. And so we must always be watchful, we must always be spiritually awake and alert, doing the things that Christ has told us to do, so that when he comes, he finds us in good order, loving one another, serving one another, being steadfast in hope, increasing in good works. That all of us are in that state of readiness. Now, I'd like to direct your attention today to one particular verse that we talked about briefly last week and is going to be the jumping point, the jumping off point for our message today. And that's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Towards the end of the words of Jesus Christ to the church at Philadelphia, he gives them this promise. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. This verse is key. This verse is significant for one particular doctrine. The Bible is filled with doctrine. Some of the doctrine has to do with the person of God, his attributes, his character. Some has to do with our character as human beings and what it means that we've been created in the image of God and yet have fallen into sin. Doctrine about the Lord Jesus Christ as the unique son of God, as the savior of the world. How that salvation of Christ and his death and resurrection is applied. The Bible is filled with doctrine. And one of the key doctrines that is found in scripture is the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. It is a blessed doctrine. It is a wonderful doctrine. And sadly, it's a doctrine that so often we lose the significance and the value of it in light of all of the disagreement and misunderstanding that exists among Christians on certain elements of the doctrine. Now, by and large, Christians agree on the doctrine of the second coming. There are some key elements about this that we all agree on. However, There are some points of difference that are significant, they are important, they're worth talking about, but we are in danger often of losing the big picture in light of some of the disagreements and misunderstandings. This morning, we're focusing on Revelation 3.10 because this is the key text for the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture. Now, if you're familiar with some of this discussion and debate on the rapture, then you might understand why this is a key text, but this term might be new to many of you. What is the pre-tribulational rapture, and why is Revelation 3:10 such an important and significant text in that discussion? Well, I think that Revelation 3:10 is the most convincing evidence, the most convincing scriptural passage for the teaching of a pre-tribulational rapture, but it's far from the only text that we have to consider when we're looking at this doctrine. Now, take a look again at the text, Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, that's the preface here, but the promise is, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, this is a clear promise to the church at Philadelphia However, as we've been reading through Revelation 2 and 3, we've discovered that each message to these churches is relevant to all of the churches in all times and places, for he says at the end of each letter, let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so, This promise is not confined to some ancient church and just a few Christians that Jesus was talking to in Philadelphia, but it's written down in Scripture for all of us, that this is a promise that is relevant to the church in all times and places, and it's a clear promise that has a significance and a meaning, but that meaning depends upon two questions, two key questions as we look at the text. What exactly does it mean when Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour. What does it mean to be kept from this hour? That's an important question. Secondly, the question is, what is the hour? The hour of testing that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. If we can get to a proper understanding of what is the hour of testing, and then we can do a proper understanding of what it means to be kept from that hour, then we can understand this promise. However, Christians will disagree on what does it mean to be kept from the hour and what exactly is that hour of testing. And so these are the questions that we have to answer if we're going to really appreciate the promise of Jesus Christ to the church here. As I said, this is the key verse, I think, in the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture. But let's back up and just talk about, well, what is the rapture? And what is the pre-tribulational rapture position? And to do that, we have to go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. So there are numerous key passages about what we call the rapture of the church. And 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 is probably the foundational text. In 2017, we were preaching through the book of Thessalonians, and I gave a message on this very subject from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, trying to determine the timing of the event that is described here in chapter 4 in relationship to the other events that God has promised are going to happen in the future. So here in 1 Thessalonians 4, I just want to read for you verses 13 through 18, and we'll talk about what this passage has to teach on the subject of the rapture. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That is, Christians who have died physically. Their spirits haven't died, their spirits are with God, but their body is asleep. That's the metaphor that Scripture uses for the death of a believer. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus is alive. He's coming again. When he comes, he's going to bring with him believers whose bodies have died, but their spirits are with the Lord. That's what is being taught here. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. He's had prophetic revelation from Jesus that he's making known to the church and through them to all of us, that we who are alive... Who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So what is the main idea of First Thessalonians chapter 4? Well, it is that Jesus Christ is alive. He's our hope. He's the one that is going to bring about our resurrection. And that our resurrection is going to take place at his second coming. And for those Christians who are still alive at the second coming of Jesus Christ, that we are going to be transformed without having to go through physical death, our mortal bodies becoming like Jesus' immortal body, and that this is going to be a wonderful reunion of those who have already fallen asleep, who have died in Christ, as the text says, with those who are alive at the coming of the Lord Jesus. So Jesus is our hope. That's the main idea here in this passage. Death is not going to have the victory. Jesus Christ is going to raise us to everlasting life. And we get some details in this passage about exactly how all of us, whether we die before Christ comes or whether we're alive when Christ comes, are going to experience that together with this coming of Christ. Now, there's a number of things that the passage doesn't teach. This passage doesn't tell us when this is going to happen in relationship to many of the other prophesied events concerning the second coming of Christ. We had our scripture reading in Matthew 24 today, which had many doctrines, many teachings, many elements of what is going to happen when Christ comes again. And trying to understand 1 Thessalonians 4 in relationship to all of those other events and the timing of it, well, that is the debate that takes place among Christians regarding the timing of the rapture. And so there are numerous positions on this and it seems like there's more that can be added and are being added from time to time. And here I put up this slide, warning, hard work ahead, because determining this doctrine, trying to get to the root of what exactly is the timing relationship between what is clearly described in 1 Thessalonians 4 with the other future events, That is difficult work in handling Scripture accurately. It's an in depth study. It's a rather technical study. But here's my bottom line The summary of my study on this passage and all of the other relevant passages on the doctrine of the rapture is that the Bible teaches that when you put all of it together and you weigh the evidence, you try to figure out what is the best understanding. The Bible leads you to believe a pre tribulational rapture of the church. Now, what does that mean? What do we mean by pre tribulational? Well, let's go back to Matthew chapter 24. Turn back to Matthew chapter 24 with me. We had our scripture reading here in Matthew 24, and the chapter opens up with the question from the disciples concerning. When will these things be? And what is the these things? Well, it's the destruction of the temple that Jesus has just predicted in the opening verses. The disciples are asking in verse 3, When will this be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so Jesus answers regarding the destruction of the temple, regarding the coming of Christ and the end of the age, and it's complicated. That's why there's difficulties among Christians, different viewpoints, not only regarding the timing of the rapture, but even regarding the timing of these judgments that Jesus Christ is describing that are related to the tribulation, the trouble that he's talking about. We did a whole series on Matthew 24 and 25. It's on the website, and we can get more in depth if you go back and look at those studies. But for now, I just want you to notice that Jesus Christ describes a time of difficulty and trouble, starting there in the opening words of his discourse, talking about false Christs in verse 5, talking about wars in verse 6, talking about the beginning of the birth pangs in verse 8, persecutions in verse 9, lawlessness increasing, and then getting into some specifics about the abomination of desolation. And notice... He says that there's going to be this time of great trouble. Look at verse 21. Then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. Now, does that refer to some tribulation that has already passed? Does that refer to a tribulation that's in the future? Again, there are different views and interpretations of Jesus' words here, but I view them as being in the future, that this future tribulation is coming and that this is related to the coming of the Son of Man because you come down to verse 29 and you see that immediately after the tribulation of those days, the tribulation, the great tribulation, then you've got these signs in heaven followed by Jesus Christ coming and gathering his elect from the four winds. Now, Matthew 24 is an important passage along with the parallels in Mark and Luke that also contain this same discourse important passage, the Olivet Discourse, regarding the coming of Christ are being gathered to him, because if you just look at Matthew 24 verse 31, it seems like it is after the tribulation that Christ comes and gathers his elect. That's what it says. There's the tribulation, and then there's the appearing in heaven, the sign of the Son of Man, and then he comes with great power and glory on the clouds. He sends out his angels with the loud trumpet call. That sounds like what Paul was talking about in Thessalonians, right? There's the trumpet, the angel of God, and they gather his elect, and that sounds like the rapture, and so it'd be a post-tribulational rapture if you're just reading Matthew chapter 24. However, it's complicated. Matthew 24 is not the only passage that we have to deal with on the subject of the timing of the rapture relative to this future tribulation. So you see that your position on the rapture is going to be the timing of the rapture, I should say, your position on the timing of the rapture is going to depend upon how you weigh the evidence that you take from multiple scripture passages and how you put together the pieces of the puzzle that is going to really reflect your own theological presuppositions that you're bringing to this doctrine for one thing, I'm a premillennialist. And that's a huge discussion and a debate all by itself. Is that the right way of reading Bible prophecy? Or is postmillennial or amillennial the right way of reading Bible prophecy? And so that determination is going to have a huge impact on how you weigh the evidence and how you evaluate it. And so you see that one decision leads to another. And so We have to be understanding and gracious as people with different positions, different ideas weigh the evidence as makes sense to them, and we need to be reasonable. We need to be patient, always going back to the text, seeking the truth. But we must be on our guard that we don't start to attribute to others unworthy motives, We don't start to treat others as if they are insincere in their desire to handle the text accurately, but instead we recognize that this is one truth built upon another truth, and if they made a mistake somewhere, then that's going to affect how they're putting it together here. And so the teacher of God's Word must be patient. He must be humble. He must be able to instruct not taking things personally, not attacking people personally, but instead always treating others the way that we want to be treated. What if I've made a mistake and I've weighed the evidence wrong and premillennialism is actually not the doctrine of scripture? Well, then I need to be taught. I need to be instructed. I need to be corrected. I don't need to be personally attacked because I'm doing my best to honor scripture and to teach scripture and to believe all that is written here. Turn with me to the end of the Gospel of Luke, an important passage here that I want you to see that is not specifically on this doctrine, but has great relevance to how we approach it. Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he appears to his disciples, and I want to look particularly at his discussion with them on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, verse 25. Jesus said to his disciples, just a couple of them that are walking here with him, they don't recognize him yet, they don't know that he's the resurrected Christ, but they're talking about what Jesus has done and the resurrection, and he says, "'O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory?' And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Here's what I want you to notice. The events concerning the first coming of Christ, we were responsible to have believed that. We meaning people who believe the scriptures. These Jewish disciples... Jesus rebukes them for not having the understanding of what Jesus Christ was going to do and how things were going to play out in light of what God had revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. However, I want you to recognize while it's our slowness of faith, it's our foolishness that causes us to misunderstand scripture, this is a problem that we all have, that we all share, and that we want to be gracious and kind towards one another because you look back at the Old Testament and Where in the Old Testament do you have a specific statement about how Christ is going to come, he's going to die for our sins on the cross, he's going to be in the tomb for three days, and then he's going to rise again on the third day, and then he's going to ascend to God, and then he's going to be gone for a while, and then he's going to come back. I mean, where is that in the Old Testament where you can just look at a passage and say, okay, there it is, just believe it, it's very simple. It's not laid out that way. The resurrection of Christ is an implication of certain Old Testament texts. Can you go to an Old Testament text that says, the Messiah, the Son of David, is going to rise from the dead? No, you can't. It's not explicitly stated. Now, it is implied. It is implicit in the revelation as a whole, and specific passages like Isaiah 53 very strongly imply the resurrection of Jesus. And the Jews... Like, these disciples should have understood it. They should have recognized it, but they didn't. And that's very similar to the events concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. We should understand it. We're responsible for understanding it. We should be able to put the pieces of the puzzle together, but just like they failed, so often I think we also fail to believe everything that's in Scripture. And so, We want to treat others with patience and kindness, just like we want to be treated with patience and kindness. And if God wants to be frustrated with us for not understanding it, well, he can, because he's right. But for us with one another, I think there is some humility and some gentleness that is called for. The timing of the rapture cannot be demonstrated definitively from any single text, I think every person who has studied this in depth, who is fair-minded, no matter what their position, will agree with that. There's not a single text you can go to and say, well, this passage teaches that the rapture happens before the seven-year tribulation, or that it happens at the middle of the seven-year tribulation, or that it happens at the end. There's certain passages that certainly seem to teach that. Then there's other passages that seem to teach otherwise. And so you've got to figure it out. You've got to weigh the evidence. Many people will have a difficulty in understanding where we have to be dogmatic, where we have to be drawing a line between this is something a believer believes and this is something that an unbeliever rejects. There's a time and a place for saying this is an issue, a doctrine that is something we separate over. There's other issues and doctrines that we do not separate over and that we do not attack one another over because of the difficulty involved with it. I'm not saying that we're not at fault for not being united on this doctrine. I think if we all believed the scriptures and we we're all where we we're supposed to be, we'd have a lot more unity on this doctrine. But from where we are, there's a graciousness and a gentleness that we need as we move forward, and we want to treat others the way that we want to be treated. It's always the important rule. Never use doctrine to promote yourself. And well, I'm right, and I can show you I'm right, and everyone should follow me because I'm right. And That's not the purpose of doctrine. The purpose of doctrine is love. And if you are using the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture in order to promote yourself, then you have missed the whole point of the Bible. The Bible is to promote love, service, humility, patience. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And so let us always demonstrate that. In our doctrinal debates and discussions, there's gonna be things we disagree on. There's gonna be times where we weigh the evidence differently, and we might be at fault for that, and God will judge us. But as far as our part goes, we have been forgiven much. Let us be vessels of mercy and grace. Now, as you look at the doctrine here, there's some other key passages that we have to look at. We've looked at First Thessalonians chapter four. We've looked briefly at Matthew chapter 24. but I also want to look at First Corinthians chapter 15. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. Once again, speaking about the resurrection, here in Paul's letters, most of the chapter is just on the truth of the resurrection in general, but he gets into some of the specifics and the details, again, starting in verse 50. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it's similar to what he's teaching in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 about how there's going to be some of us who are alive when Christ comes back and who are going to be changed in that moment of being caught up to meet him in the clouds. 1 Corinthians 15 50, I tell you this brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, that is this mortal body, but instead... The perishable will not inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, that sounds familiar, that's what he said there in First Thessalonians, that's what Jesus said, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body be changed. Must put on immortality. So, once again, the truth of the future resurrection, this future change, is what's in focus. And the details about when it's going to happen and how it's going to happen are not the main point, but they are significant. And that is that it's at the last trumpet, as he says here. The trumpet will sound. All right, so that doesn't necessarily solve the problem for us either. Exactly when in relationship to all of the events that we are expecting as prophesied, if we're reading Matthew 24 right, if we're reading Revelation right, if it is futurist prophecy that's yet to be fulfilled, well, let's take a look at the different positions, okay? So, here's a comparison of Christian tribulation views. So, really, this is a comparison of premillennial views, because notice, in every chart, the second coming of Christ is before the millennium. So these are pre-millennial, and pre-millennial means the second coming of Christ is before the millennium. Pre means before, second coming before. So these are three different premillennial views of the coming of Jesus, his second coming. Of course, his first coming is here with the cross, and you've got a pre-tribulational view, a mid-tribulational view, and a post-tribulational view. Those are the three we'll be discussing today, but there are other views as well. We'll get to those at a future time. So here in the pre-tribulation, you've got this period of tribulation, seven years, and that we are raptured before this seven-year tribulation, right before Christ comes back and begins the millennium. That's one understanding of the timing of the rapture in relationship to the tribulation, pre-tribulation, before the tribulation. Got it? The second view is the mid-tribulation, that Christ comes back in the middle of the tribulation, to rapture the church and bring us to heaven, and then he brings us back with him at his second coming in judgment. Notice that with the pre-trib and the mid-trib positions, the coming of Christ is kind of in two parts. You've got the rapture part of his coming, and then you've got his second coming in judgment to start the millennium, and that they're separated by this period of seven years. That's a more complicated scheme than the post-tribulational view, which sees that you've got this coming tribulation. Everyone agrees there's this tribulation before the millennium. And that right at the end, Christ comes, he raptures the church, we meet him in the air, and then we come back down with him for the millennium, for the kingdom of God, leading into the final judgment and eternity there in events after the millennium. So premillennial views of the rapture, different timings. And I'm proposing to you that Revelation 3.10 is the key verse that is in support of this pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And that depends upon two things. Number one, what does the text mean concerning the hour of testing? Is the hour of testing this seven-year tribulation before the millennium? Is that what Jesus is talking about? And what does it mean to be kept from the hour. If we are kept from the hour of testing, that would indicate a rapture of the church keeping us out of this hour of tribulation. However, if the hour of testing that is coming upon the earth is not the whole seven-year tribulation, say it's just the second half of the tribulation, well, then we could be raptured before this coming hour That would be the second half of the tribulation. In the post-tribulational view, the hour that is coming to test the earth would be a very short period indeed. (laughs) It would be just the last day or so of the tribulation period that we would be kept from. And so you see how Revelation 3.10 is a passage that when you take it into account, it makes it hard to hold to a post-tribulational view, even though if you were just reading Matthew 24, you might read that Jesus taught a post-tribulational rapture in Matthew 24. And so some people say, well, if Revelation 3.10 kind of X's out this one and Matthew 24 makes this one hard, then maybe this mid-tribulation is the right view. And so you start to understand where the discussion and debate lies on how you interpret certain phrases, certain verses, and try to make sense of it the best that we can. There's one other text that I think is very significant for us to look at before we make our final statements on our position here, and that's back in 1 Thessalonians. Go back to the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. We looked at 1 Thessalonians 4 regarding the truth of the rapture. And some Christians will say, well, the rapture is not a biblical teaching, this is something that premillennialists and dispensationalists have made up, and it's not in the Bible. And when they say that, what they actually mean is is that a pre-tribulational rapture is not in the Bible. And we would agree that there's no specific text that says there's a coming seven-year tribulation and the church is going to be taken out of the world before that seven-year tribulation. Although if we're interpreting Revelation 3.10 correctly, it's pretty close to saying that. And the implications are pretty strong. But anyway, the idea of the rapture, not just a pre-tribulational rapture, But a rapture, just in general, for any of these positions, is explicitly taught. Because 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And that word caught up is the same word for rapture, just translated into a different language. And so the Bible teaches that we're going to be caught up. The Bible teaches we're going to be raptured. No one should deny that. That's the plain statement of Scripture. The question is, when is that going to happen? Is it happening at the same time as the second coming? Or is there a time period, either seven years or three and a half years, in between the rapture and this second coming of Christ? And people who don't like the pre-trib and the mid-trib position, they say that you've got this two-part coming of Christ that is not biblical. And the Bible just teaches a simple one-time coming of Christ, meet him in the air, come back down. All right? So the other key passage here is 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Look at 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Here Paul, writing to the church, the same letter that we have the passage on the rapture in, in chapter four, he says that we are to wait for his son from heaven, that's the second coming, whom he raised from the dead, that also ties in with chapter four, we believe Jesus is risen from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So once again, very similar language to what we have in Revelation 3.10. Revelation 3.10 and 1 Thessalonians 1.10 seem to be about the same thing, that Jesus is going to deliver us. Here the word is deliver. There in Revelation 3.10, it's to keep from, deliver, being kept from, different verbs, but basically the same idea. And here, the hour of wrath is what we're being delivered from, whereas in Revelation 3.10, we're being kept from the hour of trial, the hour of trial versus the wrath to come. So is the wrath to come the same thing as the hour of trial? I would argue yes, that these are two ways of describing the same thing, that these are basically two versions of the same promise, and I think that's the best way of reading it. So, this passage is most similar and it's got the same two questions. What is the wrath to come? What does it mean to be delivered from it? So, with all of that laid out, let's go ahead and do our best to answer those two questions. What is the wrath to come? And likewise, what is the hour of trial in Revelation 3:10? What does it mean to be delivered from it? From 1st 1 Thessalonians 1:10, which is another way of saying what does it mean to be kept from the hour of trial? So, first of all, what is the wrath to come? What is the hour of trial? Well, the wrath to come, I could walk you through, if we had the time, the verses that I think are key in understanding the wrath to come. And a lot of them come from the book of Revelation. The Revelation talks a lot about the wrath to come, both historical judgments and also the future lake of fire, which is also a historical judgment. It just lasts forever. It goes into eternity. So my bottom line here is that the wrath to come includes the historical judgments described in Revelation as well as the lake of fire that is also described in the book of Revelation. So it's not just one or the other. It's not just the lake of fire. It's not just the historical judgments. It's all of that together. And that's the wrath to come that the book of Revelation unveils for us. And it's also identified as the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And as we continue through the book of Revelation, I'll lay out more of that evidence that the hour of trial is the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, the judgments that are unleashed during the course of the rest of the book. Now, if that's true, if my conclusion is right, that the wrath to come, the hour of trial, are the historical judgments of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls and the lake of fire, then what does it mean to be delivered from it? Delivered from out of here in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 has some verbal parallels in the rest of the New Testament. That's what you want to do. You want to look at other places where you have the same verb, delivered, and the same word after it, out of, and see, well, what does it mean in other places so we can determine what it means here as well. And as you go through all those examples in the New Testament, it's very often used of persecution, it's very often used of the troubles that Paul got into, and how God delivered him from those persecutions and from those troubles. And so in light of that evidence, it's not conclusive that this definitely means a pre-tribulational rapture because Paul had to go through a lot of troubles in order to be delivered out of them. And so we would have to go through a lot of tribulation in order to ultimately be delivered out of it, if you follow my logic there. So just the grammar itself does not prove a pre-tribulational rapture when it says that he delivers us from out of the wrath to come. However, that's why I think Revelation 3.10 is a more important, a more significant verse, because if you go back to Revelation 3.10, look at the language that is used there by the Lord Jesus. I think it's more conclusive. I don't say it's completely conclusive, but I think it's more has a stronger weight of evidence when Jesus says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Keeping from an hour, what does that mean? Well, you can keep someone from a trial, but to keep them from a time period of trial, that to me seems to indicate a pre-tribulational rapture because here's a time period And to be kept from that time period would mean being raptured. That's how you're kept from a time period, kept from an hour. Now, if you define the tribulation as just the second half of these seven years, then a mid-seven-year rapture would also accomplish the same thing grammatically. Being kept from that, you just have a different definition of what is the tribulation, what is the hour that is coming. Is it the seven years? Is it the three and a half years? Or something else? So you see how both of these questions are important. But I think the question of what does it mean to be kept from the hour is a pretty strong evidence for either the pre-trib or the mid-trib position. And then you have to look at other things as well to try to determine which then of those two is the best. And in order to do that, I think one of the key passages that we haven't yet looked at is in 2 Peter. All right? 2 Peter chapter 2. I told you, hard work ahead. There's a lot of texts that you have to deal with, that you have to handle, and you have to try to be fair to each one and to try to weigh the evidence in an impartial manner. So back to Second Peter chapter 2. And here I think Second Peter 2 verses 4 through 10 is key in determining what does it mean for Christ to keep us from the hour of trial. Follow along, I'll read verses 4 through 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept, there's our word keep, until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly... how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And stop there. So notice what it says in verse nine. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, deliverance from the hour of trial, being kept from that hour, being delivered from the time of wrath. You see the parallels here? And he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment. That's the opposite of being kept out, is being kept in the punishment, the day of judgment. And so I think that when you look at God's historical examples that are listed for us in Second Peter, and you look at the grammar of each important passage, you do then get a strong implication from 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and Revelation 3.10, that we are going to be raptured before this hour of trial, either the seven years or the three and a half or something else. All right, so what is the bottom line here? We've went through the key passages. We've done our best to summarize a fair treatment of each of those passages. The bottom line is the rapture... And the second coming of Jesus Christ, they can occur together, or they can have a time period in between them. The benefit of the together view is that it's simpler. The benefit of the apart view is that it seems to handle more passages of Scripture and to deal with the overall data in a better way. Data can be complex. And you have to have a theory that suits all of the data and is not just the simplest answer. Sometimes we want everything to be simple. Christ comes back, everything happens, boom, done. Well, there's a beauty to that. And I, I understand why people who take a poster position like the simplicity of it. But I think when you're looking at the text, you find out it's more complicated than that. And that's the way it was with the first coming. The disciples thought, Christ is going to come, boom, boom, boom. Then we're going to have the kingdom. It's all going to happen. And it's like, no, it's actually more complicated than that. I'm going to go to heaven, be gone for a while, I'm coming back. And the so I was like, oh yeah, we didn't see that coming. And so in a similar way, I think there's things about the second coming of Christ that are complex, that we can't understand if we have faith, if we do our best to handle Scripture, but we understand that it's not obvious to everyone and there is complexity, and that's important. Almost all Christians agree on these three things. Number one, there will be a time of future tribulation. Jesus talked about it. The Bible ends with a whole book about it. Almost all Christians agree there will be a future time of tribulation. Secondly, almost all the Christians agree that after that, Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. And then thirdly, believers will be taken from our mortal state and will be transferred to our immortal bodies at this time, the end times. And whether it's exactly when the second coming in judgment comes or whether it's before, that's where we disagree. So because of how minor a difference this is, it's just a matter of chronology. We all agree in resurrection. We all agree in Christ. We all agree in kingdom. So it's just a matter of chronology. Should we get so worked up about people who view the chronology differently? I think we have to be careful that we don't make more of it than deserves to be made. What does it ultimately impact, whether you view it post tribulational coming or pre tribulational coming? It does impact, it has importance. It impacts our eagerness for the coming of Christ. If I have to go through the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls before Christ comes back to get me, I'm not quite as eager for all of that to start. I'm kind of happy with the way things are now, I don't need the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. Now, you can argue against that. You can say, well, you love Jesus so much that you don't mind the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, and yes, I understand that. However, you have to admit that it doesn't sound very pleasant if we have to experience the seals and the trumpets and the bowls and be on the earth during that time. So it does have an effect, whether you think it should or not. Also, it has an impact on what we view as our role in the current time. An important thing is about prepping. Do you need to prep? for the great tribulation? Or are you not needing to prep for the great tribulation? Do you need a bunker? Do you need a food supply? Do you need a generator? You know, if, if these things are coming and we have to be here, it might be wise to take some steps. I don't think we're going to be here. I don't have a bunker. I don't have a generator. I have a few things. I have some food, but uh, don't let other people know. <laughs> you guys can know. So it does have some effect, but we shouldn't make it a test of orthodoxy. That's my point. We want to pursue the truth. We want to love one another. We want to be patient. We want to instruct. Don't be proud, but be a servant of others with what you know. Let's have a closing word of prayer. Father, our best is often not good enough, as the Lord Jesus Christ rebuked his disciples for not believing everything that is written in the Scripture. We confess that it's our unbelief often that keeps us from our understanding of Scripture. And each one of us has unbelief to confess before you. Demonstrated in our actions, demonstrated in our words, demonstrated in our thoughts. Lord, in so many ways, our faith is is small and weak. And if we do have the right opinion about the timing of the rapture in relationship to the coming tribulation, Lord, help us not to be proud or to use that to exalt ourselves, but help us to use it to humbly love and serve others, seeking for the unity that you've created, the unity that you have made among your family. And may the love of Jesus Christ control us in all of our doctrinal discussions and debates as we pursue the truth, but not at the expense of loving one another. Amen.